to the Gen X Voice podcast. I'm your host, Trish the Dish, and we're here celebrating the generation that has been forgotten, Gen X, while also celebrating other generations um, to try to figure out what the identity of Gen X is, but also bridge all of our generations together um, to make this world a better place, more tolerable. So March 13th, I'm going to be doing a live stream with my boomer friend, Vicki. Um, we're going to be doing 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about uh, how sex was viewed in her generation, my generation, and in today's world. So tune in for that. And also, um, it's a great convention. Pod VCon stands for uh, – podcast virtual convention and it's going to be held over two weekends in March and it's all free so uh, make sure that you like my Facebook page uh, Gen X Voice so that you can see our live stream um, in on March 13th but also head over to podvcom which stands for podcast virtual community uh, to to view all the podcasts and there's a bunch of panels as well so um, really hope you uh, you join us for that and make sure that you uh, click on the link in streamyard so that we can see your comments during our live stream because it always makes the live stream so much better. Also, I wanted to let you guys know about an article I wrote for X Generation Now. You might remember Michael joining us um, a few weeks back from that website. Um, after we were done with him being on the podcast, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes um, as usual, uh, he asked me to write about my experience being the only female in um, in the uh, underground music scene in Springfield, Illinois in the 2000s, um, which is crazy, right? Because now girls are always in bands. Um, but at that, that time, I was the only one. Um, and so I'll put a link to that article as well. So this guest um, that we're listening to today is one of my friends from my Flagstaff days and France, uh, sorry, France days. Um, so Gabe is going to share with us his upbringing and um, how he grew up in this sort of bohemian home filled with music and um, drinking and laughter um, in, in a very conservative Mormon community in Mesa, Fe uh, Mesa Arizona, which is by Phoenix, and how he, a, a trip that he had when he was 10 years old changed his 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 trajectory in life. And also, um, we kind of talk a little bit about living in France and what and what that was like for him, um, as well as a little bit of my experience too, because he was kind of my guru on um, moving to France and figuring out, you know, how to navigate that world. So um, really hope you enjoy the episode. I'd love to hear from you guys. So make sure that you, after you like uh, the Gen X Voice Facebook page, head over to the Facebook group, Gen X Voice, and genxvoice.com because I would love to hear how you uh, what you think about these uh, shows and um, you know feedback in general um, and uh, enjoy the show. Hi Gabe. Trish, what's going on? Not much. just uh, enjoying this wonderful Arizona day um, hanging out with my 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 old pal Gabe AK Morton. <laughs> <laughs> tall, how's, the, tall how's the weather up there? Tall, tall good, man. Good. Yeah. Tall man. Yeah, totally. Um, it's it's actually pretty nice and, and sunny here today in San Jose. Um, it's it's normally nice in the in the winter time here. We don't we don't get really like cold wintry stuff. It's a little bit like uh, Phoenix. It's it's a little bit cooler here than it is down there. But sunny, a little bit breezy, but uh, no no rain. It hasn't it hasn't really been very rainy this year, which is uh, well, it's good and it's bad. But you know. Well, I'm 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 lo I'm loving it. It's good. Yeah, we're in that that po pocket of time here in the desert, as you know, growing up in Mesa, that it is just beautiful, and it's going to be 80 degrees next week. So we haven't we we've gotten out of winter, and now I mean, as 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 much winter as we <laughs> have in the desert, and now we're heading into like the sweet spot months that are just oh, amazing, and um. 
bright blue skies. You know, I've been taking pictures for people that live in some pretty damaged parts of the country right now with the with the weather and just like, hey, keep keep your spirits up. Someday you'll be able to come back and hang out with me here in, <laughs> in sunny yeah, Arizona. Well, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll get you back in the summertime when it's 120 degrees and you're sweating and it's like uh, whatever. We're, we're we're like yeah, it's you know it's 85 here. We're outside drinking a drinking a coke. <laughs> you know, it's totally fine. <laughs> you're like I haven't been outside in three days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know what? I, and I don't know if this was something that you um, that you kind of figured out as a as a youngster in the desert. But I, I mean, I found that if you wake up at four a.m., you have like a good five hours of playtime outside every single day of the summer. You just have to be. You just got to be an early riser. You got to you got to deal with the sun coming up and it's slowly warming up and then eventually realizing that you have to give up. Yes, <laughs> you have to stop around eleven thirty, otherwise it's just it's too much. But yeah, if if, if you get up right, and I, I remember growing up in Mesa and we had a lot of, um, um, you know, uh, well we would call them snowbirds, but we had a lot of uh, older older individuals that live in our neighborhoods um, and they would they would generally get up super early to go get some time on the golf club. Uh, very early, they had very early tea times, and I actually worked as a busboy at a at a golf club, a golf resort out in uh, like north northeast Mesa for uh, for a while. And man, it's the Sunday brunch was the worst. You'd get these cranky old old folks come in <laughs> after having a terrible <laughs> time on the on the links, and they were just grumpy, upset, and they they wanted their their eggs Benedict just the right way, you know. And it was just like, man, they they they've probably been up since three in the morning. <laughs> Oh wow! Oh man! No wonder they the older people are always being teased as um, having dinner at four p.m. Because if you wake up at three a.m. to play golf, I mean that makes so much sense. Gosh, that um, how how was how was growing up around Mesa and 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 snowbirds? I mean, because the desert I grew up in was a lot of retired people, so it wasn't snowbirds. They were a hundred percent living there, um, like retired from L.A. usually and moved to Joshua Tree. But what was it like being in Mesa with with all this this sort of influx of elderly people and then having them treat you so nastily? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, you kind of, you just, you knew, you knew that when it started getting, uh, uh, you know, good, good weather for, for us, right. When it was starting to get nice and they would, they would come down, there was this onslaught of these uh, snowbirds and, um, you had to be careful driving because they oftentimes were very erratic behind the wheel. They would make right-hand turns from the left uh, lane and they would drive really slow Mm. and, uh, or they had like these giant, like Lincoln town cars or like crown Victoria's just like, Oh, my grandpa had one. (laughs) Yeah, so just like five times too much car, too much car for them, and here they are, like barely ever to look over the the steering wheel. So, yeah, we had to we had to be careful of that. Um, But you know, at the same time, it was like it was like a rite of passage. You you knew that you know every every year you'd have to you know have you know I guess dance with them in one way because you see them in the stores, they're in the restaurants, and a huge part of the economy. So you know, thankfully they they were coming. but uh, yeah, growing up in Mesa, I mean, part of it was these, well, the snowboards, the snow, snowbirds, you, you could deal with them. That wasn't a big deal. Um, but in, in our part of Mesa, um, you know, there were just, uh, I think the, the bigger thing was just the, the Mormons. We had a lot, of, uh, a lot of Mormons in the neighborhoods that I was living in. And, and so, you know, gr- growing up in Mesa, it was kind of like, well, it's super conservative. Um, you had these, you know, older folks coming down who... Coming from places like Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, not necessarily super conservative. Like these are a little bit more liberal places in the U.S., so there was a little bit of a a change there. And some of the folks that I grew up with, you know, their families were from that area, and so um, those are the folks that I generally, you know, kind of gravitated to because they were they weren't Mormon; they were probably more like uh, Christian or um, maybe Catholic, uh, and they weren't necessarily you know, of, of the same religious, uh, pursuit. So those are the folks that I really hang out with. So when, when they, when they would have their family come down, it was like, Oh, you're from green Bay. Like I got to get a map. <laughs> where is that one? Uh, St. Paul where, where is, Oh, that's Minnesota. Okay. So there was, you know, we always had to keep in mind that, uh, you know, family, 
of our friends might actually be snowbirds. So we had to we had to give them some respect, even if we didn't like how they drove. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's a good point. They they gave you a little bit more culture. It sounds like mm-hmm. than um, this sort of conservative Mormon area that you grew up in. You know, for our international listeners, Gabe. Can you explain what you mean by Mormon and and what makes them particularly conservative, at least from your childhood experience? Well, I can I can talk um, about the the neighborhood where I grew up, um, and it's definitely I shouldn't be generalizing because there are you know there are obviously you know people are different um, different places that you go you know Catholics are different uh, Protestants are different you know Baptists are different kind of depends on you know where they are in, in a state or, or or a community but the the group of Mormons that that I was growing up with um, were I mean middle class uh, you know white collar big families generally like four to five kids per family um, you know the fathers generally had uh, you know tech jobs or um, engineers or doctors a lot of doctors doing you know weird things like feet mouth nose ear that type of stuff real specialists um, so pretty pretty well to do and then yeah obviously Bigger families, you know. Generally, the the fathers had good jobs, um, and they might have been, like I said, specialists in a field of medicine that was pretty obscure. Feet, toenails, whatever you want to go, eyeballs. I don't know. They, 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 this was kind of the group, the group of people that we were growing up with. Um, and then they were very invested in the church. So they spent a lot of time, uh, you know, I think Wednesdays was family day. You couldn't hang out with uh, the Mormon kids on Wednesdays because they had uh, family time, a dinner. Um, Sundays obviously completely off limits. You can't hang out with them because the, the whole day is, is church-based. And then, you know, other random events will come up. So I, I would say that this this group of Mormons that, that I grew up with were they were very devout, um, very, very conservative, really into it. Um, and, you know, very, you know, very strongly in this sort of like, hey, everyone else has to be Mormon. So they would ask you to join them. They wanted you to be part of their gatherings. Why don't you come down and see the ward with us? We'd like you to meet so-and-so. Why don't you come have dinner with us on Wednesdays? Um, they were big into trying to get folks to be like them. And uh, I, I, you know, Good people, wonderful, um, just a little creepy in that sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, and and completely different than the home that you grew up in because your family wasn't like that at all. No, no. So, and I I don't come from a standard uh, sort of mother and dad who uh, you know had always been together since high school or whatnot. I mean, my you know I my mother. Um, you know, she she had some trying times. You know, when I was when I was born, um, and she was married with uh, my half brother's dad. And uh, you know, I wasn't I wasn't part of that family really because she had had an affair. And so when I was born, everyone looked at me, and then they looked at Ted, my brother's dad, and they're like, "This this kid's not from Ted. Like they just don't look alike." It was very clear. Um, and so there was a divorce that ensued, and uh, you know, fortunately, my mom got custody of me. And for a couple of years, we lived in some weird little places um, until she uh, she convinced uh, my my new dad, um, John Weber, um, who actually turned out to have, he he was my pediatrician actually. So she knew John Weber um, through being you know family pediatrician, and they moved in together. Uh, this is probably when I was three or four. Um, so like 80 or 81 and, uh, we moved oh, out. Yeah. We, we might have to pause there real fast because <laughs> as usual, I failed to ask the most important question, which is what year were you born yeah. and what generation do you identify with? It's just the family stuff and the whole Mesa thing. We just got, I just jumped into that so quickly. So if you don't mind answering that. Real yeah, close. no. Well, I was born in 1977, June 6th. That's the uh, the day uh, that we should all remember is when the, the Allies stormed the beaches in Normandy, France in 1944, eventually helping the, uh, yep. the Russians turn the turn the tide of the war against uh, against the Germans. But so June 6th, 1977, um, born in Phoenix at St. Joseph's, St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, let's see. I, I, you know, the whole, do I, do I, do, am I part of Gen X? Am I part of Gen Y? For a long time, I didn't know. I didn't know which, if I, which, by the way, 
Gen Y isn't even used anymore. It hasn't been used for quite a few years. And when I did some research on the um, on the Pew um, Research uh, website, um, it only mentions millennials. millennials. It no longer mentions Gen Y. It just shows yeah. how old I am. I must be Gen X. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, it's funny because I have some millennial friends who refuse to call themselves millennial. They only want to use the term Gen Y. But um, if if the most reputable research <laughs> website or whatever uh, isn't even using that term. But then again, we, we use the term Xennial, and um, that's not recognized as a generation, which by the way, is the pocket of time that you and I sit in, which is mm-hmm. between Gen X and Millennial, because we're the Oregon Trail generation. We're the we're the first group of kids to have access to video games pretty mm-hmm. much from day one. And um and and we kind of evolved with technology um more so than than even the generation um the the folks in our generation who are now in their fifties. Yeah, um, we we're the ones that actually had computers integrated into our elementary schools for the first time. I remember the carts. Yeah, they would bring in a cart. So I guess yeah. I mean, as I've gotten older, I, I feel like I'm definitely more Gen X than Millennial. Um, for a while, I really felt like yeah, like I didn't really fill into either one. And a lot of that was because my half brother is four years older than me, Adam. Um, he, he had very different interests when we were growing up. Um, he was really into like hard rock music. He kind of almost had a mullet for a while, real, you know, tight black jeans. Uh, he, he was really into, I don't know, drinking and like, I don't, doing weird stuff. Um, and I just, I wasn't like that. Uh, you know, in, in my high school time, I, I didn't have the same interests as him. So for, for a while, I was like, I'm, I'm totally not like him. I can't be Generation X. I can't be Gen X. I, I must be something different. And, but I didn't think I was millennial either. So I don't know if, if there's something in between, maybe, but whatever, you know, I, I think more, more Gen X here, um, even though real at the very tail end of, of what we would refer to as Gen X. Right. And there is a, there is a lot of cultural differences between the older Xers and us. And it's funny because when you were explaining your brother just now, I was thinking about the older brother in Goonies and yeah. how like, <laughs> like everyone, I feel like we were those, the, the little kids like Sean Astin and that. And, but like your, your brother was like wearing the, like, the bandana and the, you know, bandana tied around his, his thigh. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Well, but I I love my brother. And as I've gotten older, like we, we definitely have uh, grown much closer together. And so we we now share a lot of the, a lot of similar interests actually. But I think part of it is because we are probably part of that same generation. And a lot of it has to do with the internet, Um, video games, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, real time communication, that sort of stuff. So, We've bonded. We've we've uh, we've we've smoothed that over, um, and uh, I, I definitely look up to him. I know he looks up. Yeah, to but me. you you definitely um, before I interrupted um, you and and brought you down the generation trail. Um, you know, you were saying that um, you were really kind of painting this picture of the struggles that your mom had, um, mm-hmm. kind of you know recreating her life in a sense um, mm-hmm. after the divorce. And marrying um, your pediatrician, um, and 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 just kind of trying to trying to rewrite her story, as it were. So um, that had to be a pretty big influence on who you are today, right? Like having your or or did you even know that story when you were younger? When I was younger, I mean, I remember. I, I well. John was, he was all bald. He was completely bald. So he didn't look like anyone else. He had no eyebrows. He had, I don't know what the medical term is, but he lost all of his hair in his, in his late thirties, early forties. So, um, he he didn't look like anyone else. And he had these big, like big round glasses. He had that, like, you know, the, the, the case that doctors walk around with, like he, he, he just didn't look like anyone else. Um, the house that we lived in was like no other house on our street because he actually had designed it. A custom, a custom design. He he actually worked to to do the architecture, very very similar to Frank Lloyd Wright architecture. 
Um, right. I, when I read yeah. that, I was like, oh my gosh, because I'm a huge Frank Lloyd Wright fan, having lived in Springfield, Illinois, where the Dana Thomas house is, mm. and, um, and and other places in Decatur, Illinois. Um, yeah. And I have friends of mine that were, were huge fans. So mm-hmm. uh, I need to know the address when we, when we go offline. <laughs> I want you to send me that if that's still around. I'd love to drive yeah. by that because... I've I've even been to the Frank Lloyd Wright School uh, mm-hmm. that's in Scottsdale, um, Talisman or whatever it's called. Talisman, like, yeah, yes. yeah, that, yeah, yeah, great way to go. You know how to pronounce it. I do not, <laughs> but it's so beautiful. But, but of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's wild. So here's this really unique human rolling in and 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 building this house in the middle of this suburban white. Mormon conservative and 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 it sounds like your your family were like kind of party animals in the in the early eighties. Yeah, so so John being a pediatrician, I mean, he worked long hours, but he also was was really big into letting letting some steam off. And and between he and my mom, they had been in like a party scene even even before I was born. I think they were kind of in the same sort of group of. Uh, bohemian partiers in in uh, in the Phoenix sort of mid seventies scene. Um, <clears throat> so they had a bunch of very eclectic. Uh, they had a, an eclectic group of friends who would come over. Everyone was a heavy smoker. Um, they they would uh, come over with like drums or like electric keyboards uh, or you know microphones. They, they would plug in my my. Uh, we had this like really high end hi fi stereo system that um we had microphones hooked up into they would record all sorts of stuff and john was a big passionate sort of piano player and we had a we had a yamaha grand piano in our living room um this giant oh, wow this giant black beautiful uh just monstrosity and we, he also had a fender Rhodes electric keyboard that he had had from years before so he and some friends would get together and they would just jam out real like just uh, jazz jazz piano duets and solos uh, i mean just crazy stuff and they, this would go on fridays and saturday nights you know until all hours um so much so that you know later on they they would they would get into just playing music at nighttime and i would i would get up and i would tell them like hey i, I can't hear the music turn it up right <laughs> like it, i need to hear the music to be able to go to sleep so a lot, a lot of partying going on um and uh but very liberal, right? Um, just a lot of a lot of like I said, a lot of strange different people come into the house. Um, we had a we had a friend of the family. His name was Mister Edwards, uh, ex Marine from Vietnam. Like actually, he was he had done some crazy stuff. He was definitely an award award medal kind of hero type. But just like hard ass. If if you've ever seen um, Beavis and Butthead, there's that Mister Buzzcut or whatever. Oh this, yeah. my friends and i we used to joke this is like i don't know how they they recorded him but this is this is mr edwards like this is exactly who he is he'd he'd come over uh on uh, like at at six o'clock seven o'clock in the morning on the weekend and like bang on the door with the butt of his 45 right gun and he'd he'd yell like weber weber open up daylight's burning And my my dad would run down the stairs and open up the door, bleary eyed, and say, "All right, all right, Bill, come in. I'm gonna get you a coke and I get get my cigarettes." And so they'd sit down and start hobnobbing at like seven in the morning, and uh, crazy. Oh, they, they they would just just shoot the shit at like seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, you know. And here's Mr. <laughs> Edwards. He he'd probably been up since four o'clock in the morning, you know. I don't know. And and so I would come out, and and he would be like, oh, Gabriel." Uh, get your mom a cup of coffee. Uh, do something good. Uh, you know, daylight's burning. Get outside and paint the paint the fence or do something. You know, he was always really crazy. But this is oh my just, god, <laughs> group, the, the group of people that would hang out at the house. Um, people were coming over all the time, so it was um, very different than these very conservative, uh, you know, buttoned up, uh, you know, Mormon folks that lived all around us. So. Anytime I went to go to a friend's house, even if they weren't um, sort of in, in that Mormon cohort, because I, I eventually gravitated to other other kids in the school who weren't Mormon, um, I, our house was just crazy compared to their house, and uh, you know, just weird, weird stuff, weird stuff going on all the time. 
So do you think that that is the reason why um, you were led down this alternative skater, raver uh, pathway was because you you saw what was happening in... Because, you know, if you grow up that way, because my home life wasn't much different than that, um, and maybe a lot less healthy <laughs> of an environment than what you were growing up in, uh, because meth did end up showing its, its ugly mm-hmm. head in, in my mom's home. Um, but you know, it could go either way, right? You could go the path down, um, which is a path I took for a hot second. I decided to join the church and, um, and, and become super religious. Um, or you can become super alternative, which I eventually made it that route because, um, the, uh, the whole church thing just didn't fit. Cause I kind of was already alternative ish. And then tried to be <laughs> ultra, you know what I mean? And that yeah. it didn't really last. Let's put it that way. But yeah, oh, yeah. is that, do you think that's kind of what, what happened to you? T- totally. I mean, I, you know, mom being, uh, unabashed atheist, um, stepdad being like, yeah, you know, there, there is, how can we believe in fate? You know, I mean, the two of them put them together with this bohemian lifestyle. It was just like, yeah, well, I wasn't going to fit in with everybody else. Um, and even the group of friends that I had, we all kind of had similar stories, you know, either father was different or, you know, uh, you know, had mother had been excommunicated from the Mormon church, just, you know, things like that. Um, so yeah, a huge influence. No, yeah. So the group of, the group of friends, yeah, the group of friends that I had were all somewhat similar to me, um, in that they were not Mormon, uh, you know, they were definitely from, uh, you know, a little bit more liberal uh, cut of cloth. And so these were the folks that I gravitated to. And then because we, we we were different in school, like we just did different things. Like we were the skaters of the school. Um, you know, we just, uh, yeah, there was like a small group of us and we all kind of gravitated together in that sense. So we kind of created our own community. Um, and yeah, you know, that that influenced our choice in music and our choice of clothes and our identity, if you will. So very, very different from the mainstream Mormon Mesa church going crowd that we were surrounded by. Right, right. And and also very different from your brother, who, you know, uh, like you said, you, you, you totally didn't think that you were Gen X, because you all were doing such different things. Um, and especially music and things like that. So, um, so yeah, so you, so you, so you fell into skateboarding and this sort of alternative life with your friends. Um, but something really magical happened to you a little bit before that, when you were about 10 years old, you want to want to tell the audience about your, your amazing trip abroad and how that kind of changed your life forever. Oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, growing up, um, we didn't leave the state of Arizona. Like we would go on trips to, my mom loved ghost towns. She, she liked to go see places like Jerome um, and, you know, just weird places that, uh, you know, Bisbee, we would take these crazy long drives through the desert and go to these little tiny weird towns. And, Oh, she, she got a big kick out of that. So we, and there's a lot of that in Arizona, as you know. Um, so we spent a lot of time driving around Arizona and, um, you know, my stepdad being Dutch, he, uh, would organize every once in a while a trip back to Holland to see his, his mom and his brother. Um, and when I was 10, they organized a trip and they said, Hey, you're going to come with us. We're going to take two weeks. We're going to go back to the Hague, um, in Holland and, we're going to rent a car. We're going to drive down to Paris. And you know, these were all places that you know I didn't really know much about. And certainly having never left Arizona, didn't have any understanding of, of what, what it could be. For me, the world was the desert outside with the Superstition Mountains at the, at the uh, east end of our, of our street, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, wow, yeah. You know, this is which are amazing mountains. Yeah, but but this this was it. This was this was the the life that I had, you know, growing up in, and um, suddenly being, you know, on a on a seven forty seven flying for twelve hours, uh, you know, ending up in Holland, which is like windy, rainy, everything is super small. It's all like super compact. Like you can get eight Hollands in the state of Arizona. Like Maricopa County is about the size physically of, of Holland. And yet there's, you know, almost 16 million people that live in Holland. So think of that. I mean, you have to almost, 
you have to quadruple the number of people in Phoenix to get to the density they have in Holland. Um, cows everywhere, polders, canals, trains. Oh my God, trains everywhere. Well, and just all the, the and and just the architecture, the architecture of you know specifically Amsterdam is so vastly different than anything you'd have in say Arizona, let alone the United States. Here's a leaning house that's been leaning on this uh, canal for the past 350 years. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> Arizona wasn't even a thing 350 years ago. What are you talking about? Yeah. Oh, and there's a whole street of these things. So that was that was a real eye opener. Uh, a real eye opener. Something completely different, um, and and yet familiar because you know John. John was from there. So everything was like, yeah, we're going to go to this market. We're going to get some fish, some pickled fish. Let's eat some pickled fish. Like, what? We don't eat pickled fish. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, and let's go to this little shop where they have really stinky cheese. Stinky cheese. Oh, well, yeah, this is good. This is cheese that has cumin seeds in it. What is this? Oh, like everything was just a little bit different. And then there was the ocean. And this crazy, wild, like roiling, blustery beach, just, I mean, just seagulls everywhere and, and the ocean, it was so powerful. It was so completely different than anything I'd ever experienced. Um, and, and then, and then we got Growing in a car. up in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then we got in a car and we drove, we drove for what seemed like forever through Belgium and into France. And we stopped in, in Paris. We had like a, a long weekend, I think in Paris and we walked under the Eiffel Tower and my mom told me, she said, go put your hand on the pillar. And I said, well, what? what? She'd go touch it. So we run over there and put my hand on it. And I came back to her and she said, now you know that it's real. You have been here. You have touched it. And Oh, wow. That is the coolest. <laughs> that is so cool. And and it was because I'd seen it in pictures and in movies, but this it was it was it was no longer a figment of some sort of you know intangible media. This was it was really there. I was actually really able to to interact with it. So that was that changed you know a lot of things for me. And being in Paris was also like very different from Holland. It's it was dirty. It was grimy. Uh, it was it was just like super congested. Like everything was just. Super congested, yeah. yeah, If if Holland was like clean and pristine and, you know, just like a museum, Paris was like the zoo. It was just like crazy stuff going on everywhere at all hours of the the day. Um, But again, it was like, this was kind of cool. You know, we would go to a museum or to a friend's house and we'd see stuff. So that kind of cemented in it for me that when I came back to Arizona, I was like, there's other stuff out there and I want to go back. I want to go be part of that. And so as I got into um, junior high, we had an opportunity to choose a, a foreign language. Um, and so, you know, I chose to take, uh, well, I chose to take French, but part of it was because I, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to take German because my John being Dutch, he always had nothing but bad things to say about Germans because he had lived through this the the, the German occupation of, of Holland during World War II. He was 10 years old when it was occurring. So, he had very vivid memories of, of bad things Germans were doing. So, no way I could come home speaking German. Bad. Um, and I didn't want to speak Spanish because I wanted to leave Arizona. Uh, and that left, that left Monsieur Duon who had a giant welt on his forehead. And when he got angry, it would pulse. And he was always angry because he was French. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. My French teacher couldn't have been a, a million times different, but, but he was also a, a tall, lanky Midwesterner from Ohio um, and gay that we found out later. Um, oh. And um, Monsieur, Monsieur Freaks. <laughs> or, oh my gosh. you know, Mr. Frakes, because he, and he was so amazing. And boy, talk about falling in love with the language, you know, even, even finding out he was gay, I still was just like, no, I, I love him. And, and he died, <laughs> he died not too long ago. Um, but mm. ew, a pole, how in the world could you learn French with that kind of teacher? That sounds t- terrible. Not, not in like the cool way that the French say either. <laughs> mm. Trish, I'm I'm gonna be dead honest. I was a terrible student. I I I did <laughs> not I did not do good in my French classes. Wow. I, I was I was motivated to go to them, but I was not a good French student. I don't think I got better than a C. Um 
which is like middle of the road no. for the entire time I was in high school. Yeah, no, I never got really good grades in, in oh, French. Gosh, listeners, you have no idea uh, the, the, and, and the story that we are going to be unfolding <laughs> in front of you, ladies and gentlemen. The the shock in my in in my tone. Uh, wait till you hear, <laughs> because uh, that is absolutely insane to hear you say that oh my god i just thought you were like a french savant no way i i was i was i was i was terrible i i i I could not put sentences together i couldn't conjugate verbs i was like the worst of the class i mean it was like sad um but i kept at it you know i was like i'm gonna keep doing it you know i want to do something with uh with this uh french thing at some point i kind of had a sense in high school that yeah, I wanted to leave Arizona. I wanted to do something else, um, and I started really getting my sights set on uh, something dealing with like politics, international relations, you know, something along those lines. Um, anything to get me out of Arizona. And, and but yeah, my my French skill level was really terrible. <laughs> it was horrific. I struggled. So how how do you go from being a terrible uh, French student to majoring in French? Because uh, so listeners, this is this is this is the the part of the story where uh, Gabe and I our paths sort of cross because we both mm-hmm. did undergrad at NAU and we were two of uh, five or six. I was I meant to pull out that that graduation picture and take a look at it. We were like two of five or six people who graduated with a French degree. I mean, we were such a small group that yeah. we actually walked with the English majors. That's right. So how yeah, does that happen? How do you decide I'll go ahead and major in this? Like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm not so, so good at it. But so so I got up to NAU and. Um, I decided I was going to, you know, take those French classes, and uh, you know, the first year is like it's French 101. You're not really learning that much. French 102. Um, it's basically then, high school French all over again. Yeah, like, and I thought I was going to be able to test out of it. I tried to test out of it, and they, they didn't. They're like, "Yeah, no, you suck. You suck. You 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 just go back to French 101." <laughs> like, no, you have to be able to conjugate those verbs, Gabe. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. So so I. I muddled through it, and um, I think in the in the second the second year, um, something clicked for me, and I was just like, you know, I gotta, I, I gotta do this now. I really need to take this seriously, and I really started putting myself pouring myself into those classes um, and my international politics, uh, sort of inter- international relations classes at the same time. And I kind of turned a corner with um, just my my desire to do to do more with this stuff, and. Um, and I I did really well. I actually got an A uh, for the first time in a French class in my third semester at school, and I was really pumped up about that. And through through the next uh, semester, um, I was doing really really well. And the teacher came up to me and she said to me, you "Madame know, Bosch McCollum." I I don't. It might have been her. You know, I'd have to go back and look. I or, know was, or, um, or it wasn't or it was, Professor Frederic Patricia no, Frederick. No, I had her, but it wasn't her. It, I, I, it was probably it might have been McCollin or Slovakov. I, I can't remember. Um, oh, I never had Slovakov. Okay. Yeah. So, so anyway, one of them came up to me and said, "We have we have a program in the south of France. It's an exchange program, and we have a couple of spots, and we think you would be a really good candidate to go on this to you know to take advantage of this. Would you be interested in?" looking it over and talking to, you know, one of the advisors here and, and, you know, taking a look at it. And I was like, yeah, I, let me, you're coming to me. You're telling me that I'm, I'm good enough to go study abroad. Like, yeah, I want to try this out. Right. Um, that was the so, biggest compliment that yeah. anyone gave me too. It's like, <laughs> we think you need to go to France. And I was like, me, me, moi, yeah. like, and, and especially Gabe, this, this is so fascinating, right? Because the now you're seeing what were you about maybe 19 years 19, old yeah, starting 20, to see probably, that yeah. 1920 so this 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 realization that your your sort of goal of of making it to Europe is 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 kind of slowly coming into fruition mm-hmm. that that had to be kind of a little out of body at that moment man it, it felt good um, a little out I of was, body experience 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it felt good, but it was also, it was kind of nerve wracking, right? I was like, is it, is it happening? Is this like, I, cause I had this dream of, of living and working in Europe. This is, it's what I wanted to do. And here the school was saying, Hey, why don't you go, why don't you live and study in France? Um, check it out. And so I, I, mean, I took that, I took that bull and I ran with it. I, I got to France. Um, I I did not live with the other students uh, from the school. I, I I struck out and found like a, a room in an up in a in a house uh, like on the outskirts of Montpellier. Um, I live with French people who they, I mean, they were renting rooms in that house just like I was, but they were working. They were doing other stuff. So it was like a little bit like the house I grew up in. Just random people coming and going all the time. And I was I had the room strategically. I had, I had chosen that room specifically because it was the room that 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 led to the kitchen. Um, and so as soon as I would wake up, I'd open the, my door and I would see the people in the house come down and make breakfast or you know grab a coffee. And I had a chance to talk with them. So at every waking moment in that house, I was in a French environment. And it really, really pushed me to, to make a lot of progress in a very short amount of time because I was always studying French, like all the time. I didn't hang out with you the You were Americans always submerged. Yeah, completely, completely submerged. So and when we had travel time, like, you know, time off, um, I had like a, I had a URL pass and I just traveled around France and a lot of my other, you know, colleagues, the other students, they were like, oh, we're going to Italy or we're going to Spain or we're going to Germany or we're going to go to Turkey or wherever. And I'm like, you guys suck, man. I'm, I'm going to go see, I'm going to go see what's going on in Bordeaux. I'm going to take a train up to, to Nantes. <laughs> like what's going on in Dijon? You know, <laughs> I want to go see the rest of France. <laughs> And um, wow. so, so in a very short amount of time, I, I did. I made a huge amount of progress. And um, my parents just happened to come to to Europe um, as I was finishing up that first year. And they were they were hanging out in Holland. They rented a car and drove down to the south of France. And I remember sitting on the beach uh, just south of Montpellier with with my mom and my dad. And my mom's like, "You you you are you're getting it here. Like you, this is like your element." And I'm like, "Yeah." And she said to me, "A palava." Yeah, Palavas, Palavas les Flots. I don't know if it was there, if it was. Yeah, um, Palavas. Yeah, it, it might have been. Um, there's another town just to the just to the west of there. Um, starts with an M. I forget it now, but it, it, it was it was around there. But it, like it was a dune, we could see you know the sea from there, and it was it was a nice day. And my mom was like, "You're you're into this. Like this is obviously your element. Like you should you should try to stay. You should try to find a way to stay here another year and and really you know become fully fluent." And, um, wow, your mom was the one who suggested that. Yeah. She was like, figure it out. You know, if if you can do it, you should go with this. She's like, this is an experience that you're never going to have a chance to have again. So, you know, do it, you know? Well, and, and, you know, when I I don't know about you, but when I was, um, in Montpellier for a year, I noticed that everyone that left after six months, um, they were just scraping the, or after that first semester, which is barely six months. I don't even think it's six months. Um, they were it, like they were leaving. And, and I remember thinking, I'm so happy I'm staying another semester because I can't imagine just doing a semester abroad. Like you're just tapping into the culture. Like for me, you know, I stayed in the Cité U, the, the dorms. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I did my best to, to make French friends, but um, it wasn't really until second semester did did everything sort of click, and um, and I, I could sit in the lectures and 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 know and know what the professor was asking, and I could read finally like everything because I was the opposite <laughs> of you, Gabe. I was really good in French in high school. I got straight A's, and I barely uh-huh. went to classes in college because it was just it was just easy for me. But it's funny because uh, you know. Now you get this opportunity to live there a second year in Aix en Provence, and uh, while I'm living in Montpellier, because you were my, um, you were kind of my uh, my guide, as it were. Like, (laughs) hey, this is what you need to know, and this is how you get by, and always act like a little kid, and and don't worry, you know, as far as learning, like be gentle with yourself, like you're a little kid learning the language, and that was the best advice because. It was actually advice I ended up giving my friends. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to go to these bars, these these French bistros. We're going to do this stuff, and and we're going to say stuff, and they're going to be like, "Ah, oh, I don't understand you," or 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 talk back to us in English. 
and and we're going to be like, no, we're going to speak in French to you, and um, and we're not going to take it personally. And um, but uh, so you surpassed me because you're able to have that extra year consecutive. Because yes, I yep. did move back to France, but having a consecutive two years. Um, that's it. Cause it's one thing to be able to conjugate verbs on a piece of paper, which is why I completely <laughs> changed my teaching, um, technique to su- being submerged, submerged, submerged. <laughs> I can't say the word in English. Um, it is because you really learn French by grocery shopping and, um, you know, being in restaurants and being in homes and things like that. So when you when you were able to figure out how to live abroad for another year, specifically in Aix en Provence, um, would it? How did you decide to live? I mean, I know the answer, but just for our, our audience, how did you decide to live in? And what and what were you kind of studying? What was your focus? Yeah. So, so, I mean, it all starts back in Montpellier. I had the, one of the guys that I was living with, Fabrice Scotto, um, huge, huge debt of, of gratitude, um, and homage to that guy. Fabrice was, I mean, he, he really helped, he helped me uh, so much with, with French culture, understanding French, learning French, just being around French people. And he, he told me, he said, well, you know, Gabe, there's, there's no, there's no place in Montpellier for like studying politics. Like if you want to go into political studies, you, you have to go someplace else. You have to go to Paris because there's an institute of, of studies, uh, political studies in Paris. He said, or, or, or maybe you could go, there's one over in, uh, in Aix-en-Provence as well. And I was like, okay, well, I don't want to go to Paris because that just seems like it's too much of a mess. And I, I kind of like being in the South because it was, you know, good weather. So I, I called up the the Institute of, of Political Studies in in Aix en Provence on the phone, you know, as as one does, uh, and just pick up the phone, call the administration office, and ask them point blank and say, I'd like to I'd like to get information about. Um, you know the study. You know, the, like the, the the sort of uh, ability for foreign students to enroll in classes. And the woman on the phone, uh, she says, uh, uh, where, "Where are you calling me from right now?" And I said, "Well, I, I live in Montpellier right now. I'm finishing up my my school year here, and I'm I'm trying to see if there's an opportunity to get enrolled and do a year of study abroad uh, at at your at your institute." And she said, "You're you're calling me from Montpellier right now." And I said, "Yeah." And and, and I had a brochure of this school, so I, I asked her. I said, um, "I hear, I I read here that there's also like an entrance exam, like a like a written uh, exam. Do do I have to take a written exam to get into the study abroad program for foreigners?" And she said, "No, no, no, no. Your your French is way way too good. You you just you can just come here and you can sign up and that's it." Uh, wow. And I said, "Really?" I said, "I don't have to what? take a test." She said, "No, no." So, so I said, well, when is your office open? She said, well, uh, we're closing today at like, you know, 3.30. Well, we open up tomorrow morning at, at 10 and we'll be open until 3 tomorrow. I said, all right, well, I'll come see you tomorrow. <laughs> and I caught up off the phone and I, I literally ran to the train station to buy a ticket. Like I was like, I'm going to get a ticket. I'm going to go to Excellent Provence tomorrow and I'm going to sign up for doing a year abroad at the, at the Institute of Political Studies of Excellent Provence. And so the next morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, I was I'm knocking on her door and she's like, did I talk to you yesterday? <laughs> I was like, yeah. She's like, oh my gosh, you're here already. She's like, okay. So um, yeah, I signed up for that second year. And that second year, I was completely immersed with the French students. Like there were a bunch of other European students that were showing up there, other Americans, but I immediately gravitated to the other French people in, in the classrooms that I was in. And I got in good with a with a small group of of uh, French people and and some uh, some some Portuguese people as well, um, and just having a great time with them studying international politics, European Union politics, um, French history, uh, and just hanging out with them. And you know, got got in got in touch with some other um, Scandinavian folks that were also doing the same program as I. So I had a good mix of sort of French friends and then. Norwegian and Swedish and, and Danish friends as well. So we we would hang out with kind of the same group of, of French people, and so we were really off on this French trip. Um, very little contact with the Americans at the school. And for for I mean, <laughs> really funny story. There was a girl in the class who got really sick, and her friend um, was 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 in one of our classrooms. And the teacher asked her, said, uh, you know, where is where is where is uh, where is your friend Michelle? She's not in the class today. And the other girl was like. Ellie Dan's Lapital. And everyone's sitting there like, oh no. 
and, and the teacher's like, I'm sorry, I didn't no, hear. she did not say it like Ellie that. Ellie she Dazzle, did not say it like that. And she just kept repeating. <sighs> Ellie, don't, and she, she wanted to say she was in the hospital, but the way she was pronouncing it was so like so abstract and bizarre that nobody could understand what she said. Well, it was completely <laughs> bastardized the language. Yeah. Like she hadn't yeah. even heard, like, how do you, you know, ah, this is a little bit of a segue, but just because you brought it up, like, to me, that is, and I don't have the most beautiful French accent by any means. However, um, there's certain rules that you just, you learn or you hear and you, you try to mimic as much yeah. as you can. Um, and I couldn't, I was always beside myself when um, certain, you know, Americans would, 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 would try to speak French or even um, British friends of mine. And it was so obvious that they just, they knew the words. They've just, it's like they never heard them spoken yeah. or they never learned the rules. And I, and I was always so dumbfounded, like Ellis Donslow Pital. Like I can't tell you how, how I can, I know all the Americans that said that, <laughs> you know, like, and it's like, that is, yeah. That is not Elle dans l'hôpital. Like, you know, even that's yeah, like, com- again, completely. I don't have the most perfect no, but you, French you, accent, but just. You, you would have been light years ahead of these kids. And so, I mean, it was, it was tough though, because this was the group of Americans that was at the school and this was a, a fairly prestigious um, school to be going to. So it wasn't like they, they were not smart kids. They just, they couldn't, they couldn't speak. They couldn't interact the same way. And I really, I, I really felt like I, I could, I could, I was fluent when I was in a really loud bar, packed with French people at like ten thirty at night, and full of smoke, and we're all drinking. And at that moment, being able to completely understand every bit of the conversation of the French kids that I was hanging out with at that moment in that environment, being inebriated and understanding it and responding back. At that point, I was like, "Okay, I'm fluent. <laughs> right. I'm good now. I'm, I've made it. This is this is good." So, um, yeah, that second year really turned it around, and I came back from from France that second year, you know, 100% fluent, uh, you know, understanding and speaking and having and you and actually speaking with a, a like a really good French accent. Like people later on in my in my life, even today, they they can't right away figure out if I'm American, but they often will think. Maybe I'm German. Um, there's a, a couple of words that I say things a little bit differently, um, and then just to fuck them, I, I'll, I'll throw in like a, a really weird pronunciation from the south of France, and then they're like, "Whoa, I know I don't want to wear you from." <laughs> I'm just like they're totally confused. Like, like tu, tu, tu veux de vin? <laughs> Something. It's also certain things like like ou, the word ou, for. Ou, ou, <laughs> that's what like the yeah. the femme de menage like they they used to they used to be like oui ta copain and i'd just be okay. like oh my god i love can, I, can we just talk always together because that <laughs> that um that real that real twang um i don't know i just i just absolutely love that it, you know i i used to be called out on um some of my south of france um uh, sort of slang and things slang, like that yeah. when I lived in Paris, because, you know, like you, I was always drawn to alternative folks. So the, the, the folks that taught me French really were, uh, French skater dudes. <laughs> like, That's you know, right. I remember you uh, were hanging like, out with those guys in Montpellier and I was like, you're so cool, Trish. You yes. can hang out with the French skater guys. Like I want to oh be like you. God, it was, was so cool. They're, they're the reason I learned French, right? Because they were, they, they, we all sat around and got high together and they were skateboarding and, you know, they just wanted to spend that time with Leanne and I to, to, to learn the French. So, um, I, I guess uh, I'm putting that in there, Gabe, because there's a big difference between, um, how you and I kind of lived our lives, right? So you come from this alternative skateboarder raver world where our lives very much intersect. Um, but then, but then where I sort of continue down that road <laughs> for a really long time, um, <laughs> You, <laughs> you went, you went a little bit more focused and, um, and, and w- maybe perhaps a bit more driven, um, in, into, you know, really like your eyes set was just, your focus was laser sharp on 
okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going back. I am going to go somehow, some way I'm going to go back to Europe and live again. Yeah. I, let me, let me, let me tell you, I, I had had a conversation with Jill Kleiber, who you had on your podcast not too long ago. And I had had Mm -hmm. a conversation with her even before I went to France. And she had said to me, um, what, what do you want to be when you get through with your, your, your degree? And I, I told her, I said, I want to be the guy that takes a subway to my skyscraper office building, wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase. And I had told her that in 1996. And when I came back from France in two, like 1999, 2000, I was, I was on that path. I was like, that's it. I'm getting out of Arizona. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm gonna go someplace else. I'm going to use my French. I'm going to be in a professional environment using my French and I had met a girl, an, Amer- an American girl, um, who was from Wisconsin, of all places, uh, when I was in, in France in Aix-en-Provence. And she had told me about a new program that was getting started at the University of Wisconsin at Madison called the Professional French Master's Degree. And I thought, I got to look in to figure out what that is. And I came back, I finished up my school at, uh, at Arizona, um, and I... I just I just up and moved to Wisconsin. Like I I had not taken the uh, the you know the entrance exams. The GRE, I, I yeah. the GRE hadn't taken it. Um, didn't have a place to live. Didn't care. Uh, had not been admitted to the school. Was going to figure it out. I just I just up and moved to Wisconsin, and I you know I basically willed myself <laughs> into that program. Uh, I I remember meeting the director uh, or, the, or the the assistant director, Rit Dietz, and. Talking to him, he's like, "Well, you know, you, you've got an interesting profile. You've got an interesting story. You're definitely like, you know, the type of student that we're looking for. But you have to go through the admissions process to even be admitted to go to the graduate school at the University of Wisconsin before we can even, you know, apply. You know, get into your application for this program." And I was like, "Okay, well, what do I have to do to do that?" He's like, "Well, you got to take the GRE. You got to, you know, get admitted to the school." I was like, "Okay, well, how do I do that?" He's like, uh, "Do you have to?" Well, here, here's the place you go to take the, the test. I was like, okay. So I went and signed up for test prep. I went and took the test. I got a good score. Um, I applied to the school. I got, I got, I got in. And like the day after I was, I was admitted to the school, I went back to his office. I was like, all right, here's my application to be part of this program. So when, when are we starting? You know, he was like, whoa. He's <laughs> like, holy crap. Um, so, so that, that well, really. And this is, oh, sorry. I, I was going to say, this is, this is kind of the, um, the the epitome of what you and I have talked about one of maybe perhaps the biggest defining part of Gen X is being risk takers and being um just super self-sufficient independent and um and kind of going for things that maybe are off the beaten path um but they like uh, we've talked about this offline that that you know, we are maybe the first generation to be like, oh, I can go ahead and go move to France, but in mass. Yeah. Like, yeah, obviously other generations did that before us, but um, you are one of several people that I knew from our generation that were living abroad. And, and, and the whole gap year thing where people would mm-hmm. take a year off and backpack through Europe, I mean, that was a big thing in the 90s. Yeah. Um, in 2000s and um and and it's and it's really it's really neat too because and and it's so so unfortunate because we're 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 gonna have to wrap this up um with, but I mean because we haven't even scraped the, <laughs> the, the the surface of this um but your life story is just so fascinating I feel like we can definitely do like a part two um and 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 listeners if you are totally interested in this you you need to email me and let me know because um <laughs> i always feel like every every guest i have on deserves a, a a part two um but 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 definitely gabe because we haven't even gotten to the part where he goes and lives in belgium for another seven years and then gets a job at paypal and he makes all these dreams come true um but but yeah to sum it up i mean like that is um taking risks and not being afraid. And, and my other favorite thing of you, um, and your life philosophy, which is, is, is kind of something that I feel like I've had a little bit of, but I have only really embraced it, um, fully. And as I'm, as I'm getting older and that is, um, 
and and why don't you tell the the listeners what that is? <sighs> is it is it just like being comfortable with who you are and just being okay with deciding to be that person and not really giving anyone else any sort of time of day if they if they have something derogatory to say about it? I mean, that's I think what Generation X is, right? You you're independent, you're you're resilient, right. you, you just you're self-managing. You just do your thing and you don't care, right? It's It doesn't matter what other people think. You you do your thing and, and I'll do my thing and that's that's cool, right? Well, the cool thing is, is there's so many different kinds of um, interests within, within our generation. Um, we, you know, we were exposed to so many different kinds of music like MTV, mm-hmm. um, you know, was just such a big part of our lives. And um, you know, movies, different kinds of styles of movies, you know, the independent film scene became huge while we were in college, um, you know, from anyone from Kevin Smith to Coen Brothers and 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 everyone Tarantino. that's um, on the peripheral of those. Tarantino. Tarantino. I mean, fiction blew my mind. I had no idea that same, you could see a movie and, and, and like come out of there and be like, what did what did we just watch? That we, I got to go see it again. Oh, or, or too much horrified by the violence and <laughs> and cheering at the end. Like that's that's what happened to me. I was just like, did I just cheer? Like this is such a bloodbath of a movie. It's still one of my top five films of all time. Um, but yeah, so it's neat because we have such a, which is what I'm trying to unpack with this podcast, right? Is that, um, that we, we have a, a defining part of that, a definition that makes Gen X. It's just that it's so, um, inclusive and has mm. so many aspects to it that it's not, um, maybe that's why we get left out of a lot of conversations because, um, we really kind of have just been doing our own thing and whatever that looks like. And this week it might be this Dungeons and Dragons. And maybe next week it's, you know, <laughs> raving. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty much our generation in a nutshell, but Gabe, thank you so much for sharing like such an interesting path um, uh, to, to at least, at least to get you to the point where, you know, you, you graduated college and went to grad school. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned folks for, for, for part duh. Um, <laughs> but at this point, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and, um, oh, and yeah, no, we'll save it for part two. I was like, there's so many other like amazing kernels of your life that we could talk about, but we'll just give the listeners something to wait for. Um, so at this point, Gabe, we're going to turn to our rapid fire question part of the Ooh. podcast. Are you ready? All right. I'm, I'm ready. Let's do it. Oh, here we go. Here we go. What's your favorite memory from childhood? Um, it's probably got to be, um, oh, just my, my stepdad had built these, um, base plates for our, uh, collection of GI Joes and it was like wood and he had like put glue on them and had sprinkled it with sand and big rocks and had put trees on it and like painted a, a landing strip for the airplane and, just playing with those things with my with my half brother, the hours and hours of joy we had just being kids and playing GI Joes, probably the best sort of childhood memories that I could I could I could draw up. Just yeah, hours and hours of playing GI Joe. That was <laughs> God. That was the best. <laughs> yeah. GI Joe. Oh my God. So good. What's your favorite '80s band or musician? Um, '80s. Jeez. That's going back a long time. I, I don't know. Um, I'll probably say something which is probably wrong. But I mean, I, I think I think U two probably fits in there. There's a lot of good stuff from U two. I'm not like a giant fan of them, but I, 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 I like a lot of their music. That's good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, what kind of music were you listening to as a teen? Um, well, as as a teen, a lot of it was like uh, what we would call alternative music. So, alternative rock. So. Rage Against the Machine, um, uh, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, Soundgarden, 311. It, and it was a mix of all sorts of different types of music, uh, the Beastie Boys. So it was like hip hop, rap, rock and roll, uh, you know, just different genres that had all kind of mashed together. But that was, that was a big influence on, on, on me in high school, that kind of music. 
Right. Um, what is your favorite 80s movie? Oh, man. 80s movies. Um, uh, I think I think Aliens, actually. That I watched that movie a little oh, bit, a little bit after, yeah, a little bit after it, it came out in the movie theaters. I remember my 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 stepdad and a friend of our family going to see Aliens, and I went with my mom to watch some other movie that wasn't really excited about. But um, I got to see that later, and I was like, man, James Cameron, he's just he's got a knack for making those action movies. And that movie with Sigourney Weaver, who was the protagonist, as a brilliant, brilliant actress, and really showed that women can play these roles. Um, that was just awesome. Just, just fucking awesome. So that, you know, there, there was, there was greedy elements. There was like Marines and, and aliens and, you know, science fiction and, and kind of like scary horror stuff. And you didn't know how it was going to end up. And man, there were some tricks in that movie that were just, just incredible. So that was probably one of my most favorite eighties movies. Oh man, for sure. And, um, and Gabe, if you could give a bit of advice to any generation, um, either to get through the good times or the, or sorry, the dark times or just life advice in general, what would that be? Well, um, I, I might start by saying just, you know, try to have no expectations. Don't set expectations. Just, just go do what it is that you're going to do. If, if you're having a tough time, you know, just think like, you know, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Uh, think outside of the box and, you know, put, put that aside and, and remember that, you know, as bad as it seems for you, it's probably not really that bad. You'd probably be in a situation much worse, like being stuck on a train in a country where you don't speak the language and really having to go to the bathroom and not knowing how to talk to someone. Like, where's the bathroom? I'm going to pee my pants in here. Like, that is a bad situation that you, you, you can't really control. Um, <laughs> there's always, there's always something worse that could be <laughs> happening, right? Maybe not to you, but, um, that's what I would say. Just, you know, have, have, have fewer expectations about what's, uh, uh, what's, what's supposed to happen and, and make it, make it the way you want it. Just let it go. Let, you know, be yourself. Yes, yes, yes. But you know what? I feel like that is, that is becoming more and more normal. Um, people defining, their own reality. Um, it's it's pretty exciting time to be alive, and it's pretty neat to know people like you who've been kind of living that mantra um, all these years. So, um, Gabe, thank you so much for being a guest on on Gen X Voice. Absolutely, I'm very excited to be a part of it, and I'm really glad that we had a chance to to dive into this stuff. And totally happy to come back and uh, have a part de de Gabriel Adams. What? Thanks for listening. And if you think this is worth listening to, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Be kind to each other, listen to each other, and let's stop being separated by our differences. I don't want to be an army one.